Welcome to the Filmlings Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast where we analyze all that goes into effective filmmaking. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Alex. And this is episode 64, Sequel Syndrome. Yeah, we're going to talk about sequels, uh, different sequels, sequels we've seen, sequels we've liked, sequels we haven't liked, and sequels <laughs> where we haven't seen the thing that the sequel is a sweet sequel of. Um, I'm also going to try to say sequel as many times correctly as possible before I give out. Uh, yeah, we'll until well that, that word goes. just has no meaning for us anymore. That's true. That's true. But before we talk about uh, modern day sequels, or at least fairly recent sequels, uh, let's talk about some of the history of sequels because sequels aren't really a new thing. Um, and sequels tend to go along with the concepts of remake and reboots. And this is kind of our first foray into this discussion. Um, I mean, heck, even the Odyssey is a sequel, uh, and that's bringing it way far back. That's true. That's true. Um, but talking specifically about film, the best guess as to what the first ever sequel was happened in 1916, over 100 years ago, Jonathan, and it was The wow. Fall of a Nation, the sequel to the uh, very controversial uh, The Birth of a Nation, um, which was based off of another book in the series. So also, if you're wondering whether or not uh, movies have based off of, been based off of books for forever, yes, they have. Yes, um, in fact, the early days of filmmaking are littered with... Uh, just people trying to buy up the rights to as many books as possible. So that's about as old as the industry itself. Um, the first remake ever uh, happened in 1904, even even further before that. Um, and it was a remake of The Great Train Robbery, made nearly shot for shot the same, except with more violence and more money. Um, oh, really? Yeah, wow. yeah, yeah. And it was done by somebody else. Um, in fact... Uh, it was kind of uh, an attempt by another production company to capitalize off of the success of the Great Train Robbery, and they didn't own the rights to it. And this is one of those cases that kind of brought copyright law into um, film that was being made on the West Coast, as well as the uh, and extended to intellectual property just as much as it extended to the patents that drove uh, most production away from the East Coast in the first place. Hashtag yeah. thanks Thomas Edison. Um, but anyway, yeah, so that was the first remake. Literally one year after the original, uh, the concept would go on. We've talked about directors who have remade their own films before Hitchcock. Uh, it's something that's happened and will continue to happen. If you think you've, if you have a beloved, uh, film that you really just really like, and it happens to be a blockbuster or a franchise, it'll get remade. You might not like it, but it'll get remade. Um, and then last but not least is the first reboot. Uh, this is a more modern concept because it has to do with canon and continuity. Uh, and loose, loosely, we can say that the idea of a reboot was created when a film decided to retell a story but also ignore the original continuity a bit. So yeah. uh, the, the what can be identified as the first reboot, and of course that's up for debate, but a, a good example is uh, The Return of Godzilla from 1984, which is retelling the original Godzilla story, but slightly differently, like they do like every five to ten years these days. But <laughs> um, it was not quite a remake because it wasn't the same story. It was a twisted version of the uh, original story, kind of shaking up continuity, rebooting and rechanging uh, some of the uh, 
some of the the franchise canon there. But anyway, enough for but history. Alex, have you forgotten uh, the King Kong reboot from nineteen sixty or seventy six? Yeah, uh, we're not talking about that one, Jonathan. <laughs> we're, we're not talking about the the seventies King Kong. Uh, that's a bad. We're just King gonna Kong. forget that happened. It's ever. a bad King Kong. In fact, let's go just cut like out that section of the podcast <laughs> and repost that episode. It's a bad movie. Should not exist. It won an Oscar and that or was nominated for an Oscar. <laughs> anyway, whatever happened to piss me off. I think it off. won. Yeah, yeah, that's probably what happened. Anyway, uh, what are we talking about today, Jonathan, other than my hatred for 1970s King Kong? <laughs> so we're going to start off today uh, with the sequel that neither of us are familiar with any film of the series, uh, and that is Rambo. We're going to be talking about Rambo First Blood Part 2 from 1985. Uh, at the Oscars, this was actually nominated for Best Visual Effects. Uh, it was directed by George Costamos, and it was actually written by Sylvester Stallone and James Cameron, which is kind of an interesting tidbit. It would explain the strong female character, or let's let's let me rephrase that. It would refrain. It would explain the for nineteen eighty five strong female character in the movie. Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the next movie we're going to talk about is The Matrix. Reloaded from 2003, which I'm not sure I have a lot to say about, so we'll see what Jonathan has to say about that one, <laughs> uh, which is directed by the Wachowskis, which are famously hit-and-miss directors, and uh, The Matrix hit, so uh, this one came after that. <laughs> um, and then what's our last movie for the day? Wrapping up with um, a pretty much all hit director uh christopher nolan's the dark knight from 2008 following up one of our own episodes uh when we talked about batman back in episode seven i believe um this film won best supporting actor uh actually posthumously and uh best sound editing at the oscars yeah yeah yeah, yeah. please note that jonathan said all hit director and uh, if you're wondering who Jonathan's favorite director was, uh, it was it, it's Christopher Nolan. Um, also, go back and watch our Christopher Nolan episode, yeah. and you will have no questions. Yeah, I could I could honestly say that Wes Anderson was also an all hit director. Of course, uh, that's debatable because as a person who likes Wes Anderson and uh, who have asked who his favorite director is, will tell you Wes Anderson. I have heard so many people's opinions on Wes Anderson, who's opinions i did not really care to hear and i'm not saying that because they're they're negative i'm just saying like you know what yeah i i just told you he's my favorite director i don't really care what you think so yeah throwing that out there throwing shade you know who you are anyway um so on to individual was that the first time i've thrown shade on this podcast jonathan absolutely not that's true that's true (laughs) yeah okay anyway definitely not um on to the individual breakdowns, where you get to hear me explain the plot of a movie that I have not seen the first one to, and therefore I'm a little confused about. Um, <laughs> so, Rambo First Blood 2, very unique title, from 1985, picks up where Rambo First Blood 1, presumably, left off with <laughs> yeah, Rambo presumably. in jail. Um, I don't know what he did to get in jail. I'm assuming, in like a chain gang, almost. Yeah, I'm assuming it involved killing a lot of people. Um, I'm assuming it involved explosive arrows of some kind, and I can assume it involved <laughs> Vietnam. But however he got there, he got there. And it, it's just... I actually really like the set for their their jail that they use. Like, it's it's kind of cartoonish, but it's also, like, 
wonderfully ornate in how big these rocks are and yeah. the the precision with which they're set up so that they slope backwards and give an impression of a larger size and you can see all the prisoners working on them it's pretty great so to clarify this this jail quote unquote is really just like this big rock quarry where all the prisoners are just hammering rocks into smaller rocks yeah yeah, uh, yeah. it's kind of vague but it's not like a typical jail situation yeah he's clearly some kind of special prisoner and uh, over the course of the movie you le- would learn why he would be treated as a special prisoner. Um, anyway, somebody from his past comes to visit him, a uh, some kind of military commander, who's like, we need you for another mission. And he's like, okay. Um, after some slight convincing. So he's going on yeah, a mission. Yeah, he's also like, why me? Remember when something bad happened in the last movie that we didn't see? Yeah, yeah. And remember, okay, so this, this I'm curious about this line, Jonathan. So when he comes to uh, offer him the job, he's like, our computer selected three soldiers who could complete this mission, and you're one of them. And I'm like, what about the other two guys? Are they in jail? <laughs> Did they do worse things? What's up? Um, but anyway, in all seriousness, Rambo goes back to Vietnam, a place where presumably he would never want to go again. Uh, I wouldn't know that, having not seen the first movie, but you can tell by the acting and writing that he does not want to go back. Um, anyway, he gets back there and he's given a mission to rescue, or not rescue really, to just take photos Photograph. of yes. some uh, POWs that are still being kept by uh, the uh, the new Viet Cong government uh, and apparently some Russians. So he's, he's sent off and then you kind of see that there's a B story going along, a B plot, where maybe this mission isn't exactly what it's supposed to be. Maybe this bureaucratic guy... Uh, who's a military member, but also, significantly, the only member of the military who's not in a uniform. He's in a That's shirt true. and tie. He is, he's depicted as a bureaucrat, um, while everyone else is depicted as a soldier. Um, he has orders to do something other than, you know, save Rambo. They're basically sending him on death mission. But he goes, and because he's a badass, he, uh, he successfully completes the mission, along with his... Um, Freedom Fighter contact, uh, who is who is Vietnamese. Uh, I don't. Her name is Cow something. Co Co Bao. Um, yeah. All I all I mostly what I remember is that I looked up the actress and she's now in uh, the Church of Scientology. But um, oh fun yeah right. Um, but anyway, they they complete the mission. Uh, they find the POWs. They rescue a POW, and when they're about to be picked up by the helicopter. The helicopter receives orders from this bureaucrat guy to turn around, and they do so. Um, and now Rambo is left on his own behind enemy lines, and he has to fight his way out. And you have this epic setup set where he has to defeat uh, both the Vietnamese, the Russian bad guys, and the uh, American bureaucrat, um, who he doesn't hurt so much as he just scares the crap out of. Um, and I, I will say this, it is a very fun watch, very explosive. I was a little confused oh, yeah. the whole time because I didn't have my grounding. But by the end, I got a solid grasp of who Rambo was. And uh, I mean, it's it's hard to have heard of the Rambo series and not have uh, a, a pretty good idea of what it's about. Yeah, what you're getting yourself into when you're going into the movie. Right. Um, yeah, so... I mean, I guess uh, if you want to spend a little bit of time and just kind of uh, have some fun speculating about the the first one, because um, really, honestly, I could imagine 
that the first one, uh, if you just play the second one two times in a row, uh, it would make sense as a first and a second movie. Um, because if after the second movie, or yeah, if you watch the second movie as the first movie, and then you watch the second movie again, and he's in prison for all the things he did in the second movie, uh, it would totally make sense. So I think that uh, Rambo First Blood Part 2 is kind of like a loopable movie. You know how people make those YouTube videos that are 10 hours of something? If you do 10 hours of Rambo First Blood Part 2, you probably have a solid 10-part series. Yeah, yeah. And actually, off the top of my head, I don't know I don't know how many Rambos they made, but uh, it's more than two. Four? four? Yeah. It's four. Yeah, four. It, feels, it, feels like, it feels like a four-fur, if you know what I mean. Um, <laughs> I think it ended in 2008 or so, somewhere in the early 2000s. Yeah, yeah. And I should say, I mean, this is a concept that kind of like you were getting at, Jonathan, uh, is easily, easily you could do it over and over and over again. Um, And uh, I hope no big studio heads are listening right now. Who am I kidding? They're (laughs) not. Um, But, you know, this is something that could easily be rebooted with uh, somebody else in the lead. And you you would have the same same thing going on and just the same story, the same concept. Uh, boiling down to the same themes, which are kind of nice and simple, and at the end of the day, strangely hard to argue with. Um, which yeah. I like. This kind of this movie has this uh, theme of patriotism going through it. Like, yeah, I'll do this for my country, and I'll do the right thing. Um, but at the same time, it shows that there's like uh, it also has a, a number of people in the government who are you know shitheads. You know, the bureaucratic guy is awful, and whoever gave him orders is also awful. Um, and it, it appeals more to this concept of loving one's country rather than loving one's government, um, which I think yeah. kind of goes hand in hand with the, the entire, um, ethos of the Vietnam war and the fallout and the movie representations of it. Um, but it, it is, you know, strangely hard to argue with, uh, idea to, you know, not love the government, but love the country. It kind of protects itself from assaults from both the right and the left in that way. Uh, not saying that's unassailable, anything's assailable, but it, it sets it up. It sets itself up for a wider appeal than that. Yeah. And, uh, the, the other thing that kind of goes into that is this idea that, um, you know, the people who are putting themselves on the line and risking their lives, uh, for our country, regardless of, um, what the national motivations are should have some kind of uh, respect for that because there's a lot and and being serious about guessing a little bit what happens in the first movie I think after whatever Vietnam mission that he goes on he comes home and all he finds is anti-war sentiment and the fact that he was a soldier in the war uh, makes a lot of people kind of turned off against him just kind of kind of straight away and so it's not like the warm welcome back to this country that he loves that he was expecting you kind of get senses of that in uh in part two where basically he he came home from this really terrible place in this terrible war zone and did not really find anything worth being home for and so going back is not as hard to sell as maybe it should have been um and there's there's a lot of that, and then it all kind of culminates in he has a very kind of patriotic speech at the end, um, but yeah, all of that kind of um, it's not necess- It's like the movie is not pro war, but it, it it does kind of try to make this distinction between uh, being anti war and also not being anti veteran. 
which is, like you said, kind of hard to argue with. Right, right. And uh, I mean, the whole concept of him going on this mission to do, and he ends up doing the right thing over the course of the mission, which ends yeah. up being even just completing the mission that he believed he was there to be to do, rather than right. uh, recklessly following orders um, by somebody who was corrupt. You know, he's he's very he's set up to be a very lovable hero, um, which kind of brings me to the next question. My next question for you, Jonathan, is this the family friendly version of Apocalypse Now? Uh, and wait, wait, let me rephrase that. Is this the family friendlier <laughs> version of Apocalypse Now? Maybe. Um, it's it, well, this movie does not have a heart of darkness uh, to kind of pull pull it along uh, theme wise. Maybe the first um, one does. Maybe the first one was. Maybe the first one uh, was Apocalypse Now. Um, we don't know. It could have just been, <laughs> could have just been the same thing with different names. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's it's a little bit easier to follow. I think that there's. There's kind of a lot more under the surface in uh, in Apocalypse Now. Um, but again, going back to this idea of being able to kind of do the same thing over and over again, uh, Apocalypse Now is kind of like a, a, a one-and-done kind of deal. But Rambo is uh, just this really good soldier uh, who has a drive to you know, do what he does. And so you can kind of do that, put put little spins on it and do that over and over again. It kind of reminded me of like James Bond where he's just this, he's this great guy who has this tool and, uh, his, the people commissioning him can just kind of send him out on different versions of the same kind of thing. And we'll watch it because he's so good at it. Um, and I was actually thinking about that, uh, whenever the, the kind of, love interest uh starts to happen between him and co which actually there was a surprising uh twist with that which i wasn't expecting from this movie um but i will leave that to the viewers to experience for themselves but i think that's one of the one of the things that uh when you're going oh, into what, sequels did somebody die jonathan yes someone dies a lot of people die in this movie yeah, that's a true. lot of that's people. true yeah um it's good we established going- that <laughs> Right. When uh, when you're going into a sequel, um, there are different kinds of series, I feel like. I feel like there's kind of very open-ended series that uh, have this, this redoable premise, but then there are also kind of very fixed series, and that's, that's one of the things that I wanted to talk about a little bit with this, uh, this week, this whole episode, is um, just this idea of when to leave a movie open to be continued and when are we ending a second movie uh with a goal towards a finish if that makes any sense that makes sense to me uh but of course we live in the movie world (laughs) yeah where there's just sequels everywhere and i feel like i feel like maybe that's why um why this has become such a hot button topic in the past few years it's not really a new concept to people who have studied movie history or people who are alive for movie history um to to see sequels it's not uncommon it's just become more and more popular until it's become like the main mode of making movies um until it's become a topic that's been forced into the mainstream much like comic book movies um, <clears throat> yeah, I wonder if it's even that it's that it's popular in that 
or or if it's just that we kind of just expect it now. Like if we like a movie, we expect them to keep doing it because it's what we like, not because it's necessarily what's best for the story and what's best for the original film. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're so used to them leaving endings open for sequels. Like it's just it's very, very common. Yeah. There's always a way to, to tell a new story. I mean, heck, it's even permeated into TV where every ending leaves space for a reboot. And yeah, TV is a little different because, you know, that's kind of the goal. Um, Jonathan, could you oh, do me a favor? Yeah. Could you reload the Matrix? <clears throat> there you go. That's that's my... Oh, uh, man. Oh, man. Guys, you just witnessed uh, the birth of Jonathan's new career in Foley. <laughs> it's going to be his Foley new, man. Foley man. All right. So the Matrix Reloaded from 2003 follows... As you can imagine, uh, the Matrix. So, how to introduce this without going through the entire plot of the Matrix? I'm just going to assume a knowledge of the Matrix and jump off of that into the Matrix Reloaded. So, in the Matrix uh, Reloaded, we pick up with a premonition that Neo has uh, about Trinity dying, which turns out to be a dream that he's having, uh, but comes back to be important later because the Matrix is all about oracles and prophecies and premonitions and all that kind of thing. Um, but in this film, we get to focus uh, more on the humans that are outside of the Matrix because we've kind of established the two worlds and we've heard about the city of Zion and now we get to go there. But first, uh, the crew of the Nebuchadnezzar uh, takes uh, a trip in the Matrix to meet up with some of the other uh, ships from Zion and uh, we hear about this impending um, invasion where all the machines are going to attack Zion. And uh, so Morpheus has one of the ships stay to uh, contact the Oracle at some point to warn her because she needs to know about that for some reason. Um, and then they all go to Zion and we see uh, how Neo is kind of like worshipped as this savior and all this kind of stuff. All the people who believe like uh, Morpheus does. But a lot of people do not believe like Morpheus does, such as his uh, uh, the people over him. And they're all very upset with him. Which um, is a bit of a turnaround from the first movie, wouldn't you admit? Yeah, because Morpheus is like, he's like the head honcho. He knows everything, and he's super cool, and if Morpheus says something, you do it. Yeah. And so, yeah, to see him in this kind of submissive and kind of, like, chastised position is kind of is kind of strange for his character. Yeah, it's weird, and it's kind of it kind of reframes the entire movie right off the bat, because you go through the first one believing that this prophecy is a huge deal to not only them, but all the survivors. Because the right. fact that uh, Morpheus, that, that what he believes isn't what everybody believes, is kind of new. Uh, it's brought right. up in this movie. It's In a way, it's a bit of a reboot slipped into a sequel. But, <laughs> um, but not entirely, because it's not completely discussed. Um, anyway, yeah, so there. Yeah, that's that's kind of what we're going to talk about, is... Ha is um how this movie kind of introduces a lot of uh, new things into the established world of the first Matrix movie. Um, so after a little bit, one of the 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 head chancellor or something at a at Zion lets Morpheus go back out, and um, they go into the Matrix again to uh, 
uh, reach the Oracle. And um, after Neo fights this uh, this dude who glows in Neo's Matrix vision, um, he intro- he go- he takes them into this hallway of like a million doors. Um, and it's it's called a back door, quote unquote, you know, like in coding how there's back doors and also it's a door. So, that was a really hip reference in 2003. <laughs> um, so he takes him through this like shortcut to meet the Oracle um, who tells him basically that he is the one, unlike what she told him in the first movie. And uh, because he went through this whole transformation thing in the first movie. Anyway, he, she gives him uh, instructions to go to this one place at this one time. And that will kickstart their journey to defeat the machines um and eventually he's gonna have to go to the machine mainframe and other techno jargon in order to defeat them um so they go to this one mainframe (laughs) so they go to this uh one place at this certain time and they meet this dude who can like code things and his wife who's super upset at him because she doesn't get enough attention from him and then the wife kind of stabs her husband in the back and helps them get out and then these uh all these henchmen start chasing them and uh, Neo fights them off because he's awesome. Then there's a big thing on the freeway. Um, so basically they're, they're going to find this key maker who uh, can lead them to this other really important place. And eventually they get there uh, after a lot of stuff goes down. And Neo is introduced to this guy called the Architect who looks like uh, Colonel Sanders, and he sits in a room full of um, TVs where he can see, like, everything that's happening in the Matrix. Was um, that not a KFC product placement? No, I think it I think it definitely was. I mean, uh, also, the Wachowskis would have just been silly to not have capitalized on that. There was also product placement in the first movie when they talk about uh, if the machines know what chicken tastes like, so I think, I think there's a good case oh for it. Oh, my gosh, we've uncovered a Matrix <laughs> conspiracy. The Matrix KFC conspiracy. I believe it. Can we, Jonathan, can we just scrap the rest of the episode and discuss this? <laughs> Let's do it. How the Matrix, this would be like, this would be a hit um, YouTube video essay. How the Matrix relates to KFC. I can already picture like the thumbnail and it's just one of those like conspiracy boards, but it's just like Matrix photos and KFC photos linked together. Yeah. It's Neo with a white clip art mustache and goatee. I believe it. And this has something to do with the fact that Keanu Reeves never ages. I just don't know what. Yeah, that's I, true. I believe it. Okay, I'm already working on the board. Continue <laughs> discussing the movie. So once we get to the architect, he introduces us to all of these crazy ideas, uh, like the idea that this is the sixth Matrix and Neo is the sixth savior slash the one, whatever. And they've destroyed Zion six times, but they have to keep... Uh, a small part of Zion alive so that they can keep destroying it because otherwise uh, the Matrix will fail for some reason. Um, it gets it gets really hairy um, at, at that point. And so Neo decides that he's not going to do what he's supposed to do in order to have Zion be destroyed and all this kind of stuff. Um, so the, the machines start to uh, drill into Zion and like right before they do, we get the screen to be concluded and that is one of the important things about this sequel because this sequel is a bridge uh between a fixed narrative series so this series has three movies 
it still only has three movies miraculously. It has a couple spinoff TV shows, uh, animated shows and stuff like that. Um, but the three movies are still canon. So this movie being a bridge from the first Matrix where we're introduced to this world, this dystopia, and then um, basically the, the, the third movie picks up exactly where the second one leaves off, which uh, is kind of in, an interesting um, thing as far as writing and constructing a story because the second movie doesn't have an end. It is a dot, dot, dot into the third movie, Um and this series is also interesting in that the third movie comes out in the same year, so there's not yeah. like a lot of waiting for that. Yeah, yeah. You can tell you can tell from that release date that they were produced and made at the same time. They were probably written at the same time. And yeah. it was really, really more of one big movie that uh that just kind of had two parts to it that, that went together there. Um Yeah, it was like it it feels like the Matrix is open-ended but you know you could be satisfied just kind of imagining what happens after neo uh finds finds out that he is the one and all that kind of stuff and so it's like okay maybe this will work and then it gets big and they're like all right let's write two more movies skip just one movie (laughs) yeah yeah and going to a style standpoint they definitely keep the idea of um wuxia and kung fu and very very direct references including uh, the fighting of the um oh what's his name is his name the keeper uh which one the guy who guards the back doors yeah yeah something like that yeah yeah all the names are very on point in this movie um <laughs> persephone the wife who portrays her husband um right. the merovingian uh which if you didn't know the merovingian dynasty is the dynasty of um Charlemagne, so it's the first uh, French king dynasty. So all things French, get it? He likes French things. His name is the Merovingian. He was very French. Very, very on the nose. Um, the Oracle, even like later, it's like the key, the the key maker, yeah, the key maker, yeah, literally opens a door. Very, the very architect. on the nose. Um, which kind of appeals to that that Wuxia sensibility and the sense of destiny and all these strange characters about. Um, and I feel like there's an elegance to it in the first movie that it doesn't try to go beyond that. It just does it and tells right. you this, shows you this really interesting world with uh, this this kind of uh, familiar concept played into it, and it's exciting. And there's still in that some sense. mystique to it in the first movie. Yeah, yeah, and it feels a little stripped away in this one when they reveal like the political cunning behind it, and they try yeah. to twist it from this romantic tale into like this pol- uh, near political thriller. With uh, with kind of Game of Thrones ish political backstabbing going on, um, and things yeah, that are romantic a in the sense of romanticism, like like yeah, and, yeah, that's what I mean. And, I don't mean romantic, romantic. Although right, I guess because there, there is was some of that. Yeah, the first Matrix though, I mean, it did not focus on that very much at all. The second one gets more into the yeah, classic, like, the the cliche kind of rom- romance. It starts story. off with that. I think there's like a giant party that uh, kind of turns yeah. into a giant. Uh, I mean, it feels like it turns into a giant orgy. I'm not saying it does. Yeah, but it it's like it's like, like it. a big caveman raid rave orgy. It's yeah. It's so it's so like off tone from the yeah. first Matrix, and to I, be so early in this movie is kind of bold. Yeah, and the the thing that makes sense about that is that it's the opposite of anything a machine would do or ever conceive. Yeah. And it's That's so true. in that in doing that, it's incredibly human. But it feels so different from the first movie. 
yeah. um, and is that it asks a lot for, for the audience to turn on the heel um, from that. And it does, it does open it up and that's almost kind of necessary with this, with the sequel, but you've got to kind of lay the seeds for that. If you're planning on doing a sequel, which kind of reveals some of the planning or lack thereof that might've gone into these two films. Um, yeah, that's what I'm wondering, like how much they were actually planning on continuing the movie or if it was just like, let's make the matrix. If it does good, then maybe we can do something else with it. But if not, we'll just leave it as it is. And yeah. then they were like, Oh crap, we have yeah. to write more because this is a huge hit. Yeah. Yeah. And of course this, uh, I will say it's it's hard for me to buy Neo and Trinity as a couple, or at least as a sympathetic couple whose outcome I really care about. Um, mostly because of this, this partially because of the stylized nature of the Matrix, where everyone's a badass and nobody, hardly anybody, ever shows emotion. So everybody's so straight faced and serious looking all the yeah. time that you know it, it's just it's kind of hard to buy into. There was also an interesting thing in this one for me in that, uh, like I was talking about with the the mystique of the film, just like in in the world building. But there's also, I feel like there was something lacking in just like some of the granular writing of the movie. Like one of the, whenever they first go to Zion and uh, one of the other ship captains name is Niobe and there's kind of like this weird thing between her and Morpheus and Neo literally says, so what's up with Morpheus and Niobe? And uh, I think it's Trinity who says, oh, she was with Morpheus, but now she's with him. And so there's a weird thing going on. I'm like, Wait, so this is what the Matrix is now? She yeah. was with him, but now she's with him. And so well, we're we just had, like we having this high that. school yeah. feud. Yeah, like we and, and we, we got we understood all of that before she said it. Yeah. Right. I, yeah. I do feel like the writing in this movie could have used another year in the rewrite. Uh, rewrite <laughs> right. Section 11 feels very on the nose. I feel like the editing could have used a lot of lot more time to it. A lot of the yeah. moments. One of my other favorites is out. some things stay the same, but some things change. <laughs> I love it. Um, yeah. No, for me, the, the moment where I realized that the editing maybe wasn't fully baked was literally in the opening sequence where Trinity is falling off the building and getting shot at. There's like what, like two seconds too many of bullet time where like they're falling and then like they're, they're just shooting at each other while they're falling off this building and they're still shooting at each other falling off this uh-huh. building and they're still shooting at each other off this building and then she gets shot and I'm like, oh, that's what we were getting at? We could have gotten to that like five seconds ago, guys. Yeah. Um, and so, it's in slow-mo, so you really feel it. <laughs> right, right in that bullet time. And the bullet time is really cool and I get wanting to keep it in. But there's also something to be said uh, to leaving the audience wanting a little bit more. I find, I yeah. think from what I've seen, that's what seems to work best. Scenes or moments where I feel like I want one more second of it. Um, but as somebody who has spent some time studying this stuff, I kind of know that you, if you were to extend it for one more second, it would be one second too many. That's yeah. the, the you you keep the shot, you keep the moment up until the point where the audience loses interest and you go cut right before it. Um, yeah, and that's then that's they can fill in that shot. little bit yeah. on their own, which yeah. is more exciting than whatever you're going to show them. Yeah, yeah, that way it remains exciting and not oh it's still going, oh it's still going, and that's not to mention that it came after like a really long title sequence. Yeah. Um. And one of the one of the other things um, 
about this movie that uh, has some current relevance is this idea of just adding more complexity and quote unquote like interest, like new things that will make the matrix stay fresh and exciting that we didn't know about it before in the first one. But now all of a sudden, Oh, guess what? Uh, vampires and ghosts have to do with the matrix too. It all, it all makes sense. Now you're in the matrix. Um, God, but, I wish this movie had vampires. <laughs> it does. It does have vampires, Alex. Wait, does it? It does have vampires. Um, they say that like all those, all the paranormal things that you hear about are the Matrix uh, trying to uh, compensate for something that went wrong. And then when the Merovingian's wife, uh, Persephone, takes them uh, downstairs, two of the bodyguards are vampires. And she says, not many people load silver bullets in their gun. And she shoots one of them and tells the other one to go tell her husband or something. Oh, jeez. Okay. So, yeah. Okay, yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, um, uh, that tells you uh, how much interest this movie had. <laughs> how well it held my interest this time around. Um, but yeah, I mean, to some extent, when you're building, when you're doing this kind of world building thing, like, it's cool. You, I mean, you have to keep introducing some new things. But at what point is it too much? At what point does it get too complex is the real question. And I think that a lot of people are kind of, uh, making that question now with kind of the Star Wars movies and all of the new things that Star Wars has been introducing. Um, so it's kind of like this constant uh, struggle that you have when you're extending uh, specifically sci-fi fantasy uh, stories that, you know, you, you can take what you had before, but since you've got this other world that you can do so much with, how much can you put in there and how much is too much if there is such a thing as too much oh there's such a thing as too much yeah but the question is like where where does that line get drawn because if if the creator and the wachowskis wrote uh you know this whole series so it's their property it's their world like if they put it in there i mean that it it belongs to that world regardless of how much you liked uh the movies that didn't have that in there I mean, you can't really argue that that's not part of the world if they write it in there. They created it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And there's definitely something to be said that you're... I mean, look, if somebody keeps making uh, more of something, you're not going to like all renditions of it, and you're not going to like all editions of it. Yeah. It's just you're you're rolling a, a percentage dice chance of it too many times. It's going to fail some of the times. Um, it's just the way it is. And people are constantly going to try different takes on it. Because they're not going to repeat the same thing over and over and over. Oh, wait, we just talked about Rambo and Bond. Never mind. Um, <laughs> but in some of these, they aren't going to try the same thing over and over and over. And in those cases, because they're constantly shifting what they're trying, they're going to hit upon something that some people like one time and some people, some other people don't. Um, now, is there something to be said for planning out an entire series so that it's succinct and compact and thematically consistent and that it could be easily enjoyable by a widespread audience all the way through. Yeah. Yeah, there is. Of course there is. But is that what happens? No, no, it's not because series make money. So uh, people keep making them until they stop making money. And typically at the point where they've stopped making money, they've been run into the ground. So that, I mean, and that's why the question of Marvel fatigue and the question of Star Wars fatigue have come up more and more in the past couple of years because we just keep getting hit with these movies. And the question of when are they going to be 
when are they going to stop making them? How long are they going to keep making them? Is pretty darn close to the question of how long are they still going to be good? Yeah. And uh, I've I've brought this up before, but I'll keep bringing it up because one of my favorite examples of a film that could totally have a sequel, but uh, doesn't and I don't think ever will, at least not with the original creator, is Inception. Inception has such an open-ended uh, ending, which is what makes it great as a standalone film. I think the second, like the first five minutes of a sequel would totally kill uh, the whole purpose of the of the ending of the first movie. Um, but it's great because it leaves you with um, a lot to think about retroactively of the rest of the film that you already watched. And it doesn't feel the need to kind of feed you all the information or put like all this extra um, uh cool stuff about what you can do with dreams and all that in there. It tells its story and it ends. Um, yeah, so. it doesn't. It doesn't. But actually, Jonathan, did you know it is part of a series? <laughs> what? Yeah, no, it's part of the series. I can't believe you didn't know this. It is the sequel to Titanic. Oh, that's yeah. right. No, I Jack forgot was about in that. a dream the entire time. Yeah, I did. Uh, yeah, you're right about that. Um, but yeah, uh, again, as far as this movie being uh, a bridge and having only one film afterwards, uh, Alex, how do you feel about just like the concept of a to be continued or to be concluded being the end of a movie? You know what? I think it is OK if that's what everyone has expected and if that's what everyone has planned for. Um, for instance, if this was, let's say the matrix was just a two parter and it was just these two movies and the first one didn't exist. I think that's fine because they, (laughs) that's their plan is to be like, Hey guys, we're, we're coming back. This is a two parter. This is an art form that cannot be contained within one movie. We're trying something new. We're trying something different and stretching it across two. It's going to be one big continual story and it won't have reached the end until it has reached the end of that last one. Um, and also, if the first one didn't exist, this would feel more consistent uh, because the last two movies do feel much more consistent than the first one. Uh, it goes back to what I said a moment ago when I'm like, if you if you plan out what you're going to do all the way through, then and it feels like a consistent piece all the way through, then that's well, that's probably your best bet for making a good series. Um, and that sometimes involves putting in the to be continued where you finish tell you finish telling a part of a story. Um, do I think the, the ending of this one could have been a bit stronger? Yeah. Yeah, it could have. But we've also talked about um, how, how these movies haven't, didn't, didn't feel quite as big. They felt a little rushed. Um, getting, getting them out, getting them both out in the same year, only like two or six three years. Six months apart. Yeah. yeah, six months apart. Only two or three years after the first one was released. Um, which for movies of this size and scale and the world building involved and the special effects involved, especially in the early 2000s, is really freaking fast. Um, You know, so to, and to, to compare to, um, to, to this series, let's talk about just for a quick moment, because it's not actually part of the podcast today, uh, in comparison, the Lord of the Rings, which was pretty much shot, correct me if I'm wrong here, Jonathan, all together. Right. It was. Yeah, they were all planned shot concurrently. out. It was planned out to be three movies. They knew it. They knew the end of the first two would kind of reach a conclusion, but kind of also be a to be continued because yeah. it clearly wasn't over. Um, but they feel much more consistent because they were planned they, out yeah. and shot together. 
Peter Jackson also got like three years of pre-production. That's like as long as they spent on production and post-production, I think, together just to plan out the movies. Um, and I think that makes all the difference for how, uh, you know, cohesive and um, just full, but, uh, you know, it, it, it all feels like it's going somewhere and you never feel like uh, they're just making it up as they go along. You know, it starts, you know, you go through the first and the second movie and then it ends in the third movie. Some people say it ends too many times in the third movie, but still it wraps up all those loose ends and they knew where all the loose ends were because they could take the time to uh, find them and wrap them up. And of course they have a source material also to work off of, which is always nice. Um, in the Matrix, you're kind of, you kind of are making it up as you go along, but, uh, and, and I know this isn't how it works in Hollywood, especially uh, if you don't have a source material, you're, you're not going to get a deal all right, go make up three movies and we'll, we'll finance three movies, a whole trilogy. Um, it's like, make one. If it makes money, we'll make some more. So uh, that's kind of how the, the machine works. But in the ideal situation, like Lord of the Rings, you get the time to plan out your whole series in, in one go and it, it makes it all fit together that much better. Yeah. And when things get added at the last moment, especially if things get split up at the last moment, it becomes incredibly yeah. hard to tell the story, especially if you're if you're working off of a story that is pre-established. So, uh, you know, a good example would be The Hobbit or right. um, The Hunger Games, where the, the decision to split it up into more than one film or more than two films was made fairly late in the game. Um, and you're working off of a pre-established story with pre-established story beats, and you're trying to stretch it out and add something that's not there to something that's pre-existing and pre-loved. And that's just a hard task. It can yeah. be pulled off, but it's incredibly hard to do, especially on a rush schedule, especially with um, a lot of money backers behind you, a lot of studios behind you, uh, pushing you to finish on time and under budget. So so do I, do I think it's an easy feat to put together a, to a coherent series with dot, dot, dots in between? No, it's a hard feat. It's incredibly difficult, and it's really, but it's really, really nice when it's pulled off. Um, right. But as we're about to see, it's equally possible to have a more episodic trilogy that's pulled off um, very well as well. Uh, okay, all right, guys. Uh, back to my favorite city in the world, Gotham. Um, wow, that is a deep cut joke for those of you who know me personally. Um, okay. So let's talk about The Dark Knight, not The Dark Knight Rises, The Dark Knight, uh, which is the second of the three uh, Batman movies in the Christopher Nolan Batman trilogy. Um, Starring Christian Bale talking like this. Um, so yeah, what is The Dark Knight about? Let's talk about it. I'm sorry, guys. I just, I'm really not excited to delve into the complexities of this plot, and uh, please bear with me. So it's very complex. Yeah. So the movie starts with a pre-established uh, Batman. So Batman's already a hero in the city. He does this thing on the reg where he uh, beats up bad guys, um, and he's he's kind of teamed up with uh, uh, Lieutenant Jim Gordon and uh, District Attorney Harvey Dent, who is a new character to uh, to kind of you know keep the streets of Gotham clear, and it's going pretty well. Um, except for the very start of the movie where we see a mob robbing a bank. Um, 
and it, the criminals kind of start slowly like taking each other out as they're robbing the bank until the only one left is the Joker. Um, and we, we can see that he's the Joker. In fact, he's wearing a clown mask over his Joker face. Um, and, and he's the only one to successfully leave. And it's this very complicated uh, heist plot, very well pulled off. Um, it looks both chaotic and well-planned at the same time, which is kind of this Joker's M.O. Um, Remember the first episode where we talked about setting up your movie in the first scene? There you go. Yeah, right? Like, everything, all of the complexities, all of the twists and turns and surprises and chaos and well-timed planning that occur in the first scene are kind of what we're going to get throughout the, uh, the rest of the movie, as well as the Joker's instability, which we're definitely going to get throughout the first movie. And we're going to see that chaos echo throughout uh, the city and all of the characters within it, and we're going to see them fight against it in their own way. Um, but anyway, so we're kind of set up. Uh, for for the basis of this movie, which is Batman versus Joker, um, and we see the Joker kind of take over the mob bosses. Um, he takes kills one of them out with a pencil. If you've ever seen a cool magic trick, I don't recommend the scene. Um, <laughs> and we've also established the plot point. But oh my gosh, we also established the plot point that uh, one of the, uh, the the corrupt accountant for the mob has kind of fled to Hong Kong with all of their money. So that's important. And Batman uh, doesn't have jurisdiction, so he can go anywhere he wants. So the, uh, the Joker wants the mob to hire him to kill Batman and give them half of their money that he gets back from Hong Kong. Uh, and the Joker does convince them to do that. So that, that's uh, kind of our main conflict that sets off this, uh, this movie in motion. Um, Batman goes to Hong Kong. He tries to get Lao back. Um, Batman goes to Hong Kong, a new film. <laughs> Bat the road to Hong Kong with Batman. Um, see it at your local Cineplex. Anyway, uh, the the Joker kind of the plane kind of starts to spiral out of control and comes back to Gotham. Most of it takes all of it takes place in Gotham, except for the one or two scenes in Hong Kong. As uh, more people are killed or pretend to be killed, um, the Joker pulls off more very impressive planning. And uh, forces the Batman to do more to more and more extremes. Let's say that uh, Batman was hoping that Harvey Dent would do a good enough job uh, keeping peace in the city that he could retire and have a nice uh, retired life with um, with his sweetheart Rachel, who wasn't even really with him anymore. Uh, she was with Harvey Dent, but that plan becomes an impossibility at a certain point. Uh, anyway, the uh, the the uh, the plot <laughs> I'm trying not to spoil anything I know. The, the plot gets increasingly the plot thickens. More, it thickens anyway the point is that through all these complicated twists and turns the Joker pushes the Batman closer and closer to the brink where he breaks and stops being a hero stops being a good guy and does does something wrong uh, that's why the Joker keeps taunting the Batman to kill him because at the point that the Batman kills the Joker he has become like the Joker, and the Batman doesn't want to be like the Joker, even though he has tendencies that outlawish tendency tendencies that tend to bring him very close to that point. And of course, he has help from all of his uh, his allies, including um, Alfred Pennyworth from Lucius Fox. Over the course of the film, uh, lots of people die, lots of things are exploded, um, a hospital goes boom in a wonderfully unplanned scene. Um, uh, 
Heath Ledger performs a um, a award-winning uh, supporting acting portrayal of the Joker that has become absolutely legendary. Yeah. Um, and of course, it ends on a wonderful note. Um, I'm the hero the city deserves, but not the one he needs right now. Um, so on and so forth. Anyway, the point is, that's the Batman movie. Most of you probably know what happens in it. And for those of you who don't, <laughs> I have managed to not spoil anything. Um, or too much. But really, really, what we want to get into is the sequelness of it all. And the fact that this is... Um, kind of, oh, Mostly this is considered the peak of the trilogy. It's considered to be better than either the first or the last movie in the trilogy. Um, which is fantastic and amazing. It's a really strong movie. And I think what's most impressive about it, and especially in contrast to what we were just talking about with The Matrix, um, is that this is a, a series that plays out very episodically. Each, yeah. each movie has a beginning, a middle, and an end, and doesn't need the next movie to happen to be a-okay. In fact, it can happen on its own, and you wouldn't need to see the rest, and you would be totally fine with the outcome. You'd feel like you've gotten to know the characters, you feel satisfied at the end. Whatever journey that Batman was on at the beginning of the film, he's learned by the end. And even between the movies, it doesn't feel like Batman really rehashes uh, any of the same ground between the first movie, and which is about revenge, the second movie, which is about chaos versus order, or whatever the third movie is about. I actually haven't seen it. Don't hate me. Um, wow. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I know. <laughs> hey, but you know what, Jonathan? I haven't seen the first Rambo either, so. Yeah, but Batman is an, inter- is an interesting case because it does have a source material, and that source material is comic books which are inherently repeatable. Comic books uh, are made to be um, made and made and made over and over and over again for issue after issue um, ad infinitum, practically. Uh, So the interesting thing as far as this, like, specific series, because we've seen um, so many different iterations of Batman. Just go back to our other Batman uh, episode and we just covered four different iterations of Batman and that's not all of them um, but in this specific trilogy Christopher Nolan's uh, Batman trilogy um, it does have a little bit of a fixed timeline kind of like the Matrix in the fact that uh, Batman begins we see how Batman becomes Batman uh, in the Dark Knight we see what is the result of Batman um you know, becoming a presence in Gotham, right? Uh, and then how that causes more escalation in the crime uh, side of Gotham. And then in The Dark Knight Rises, where um, we get kind of this um, this loose wrapping up of, of the Batman character. So we have this... Uh, this kind of procedural character inside of a a kind of fixed narrative, but like you said, it is it is still um, uh, episodic in the sense that like each movie, you just kind of switch out the villain, and Batman gets to do his Batman thing uh, to a different to a different villain, um, and this one pulls that off really well. And it it doesn't need the next movie. It doesn't necessarily need the last movie uh, because you you understand who Batman is uh, very quickly. And uh, 
So it, it kind of hits this really nice middle ground of being a great standalone movie and also being a great bridge between Batman Begins and The Dark Knight Rises. Um, and it's it's a, re- a really rare thing to get to to have that in a series where you could keep repeating it, but also it it stands alone and it and it connects uh, this one uh, larger whole than itself. Yeah, yeah, it adds up. The, the so individually each movie is a value and not detracted if you don't watch the other movies. But if you put them together, you get something that is greater than the sum of its parts, which is nice. That's a really that's a well balanced trilogy. Um, and I do and and when you think of the best trilogies ever, uh, I do think this is up there. Um, I think the original Star Wars is up there. I think the uh, uh, Lord of the Rings is definitely up there. Uh, Indiana Jones, the first three, I think is up there. Um, there's a bunch of thematic trilogies that are really good. Personally, I just found this one um, by uh, Jock Dimmy that is thematic that is really good. Um, the Umbrellas of Cherbourg and uh, The Young Girls of Rochefort. Really recommend those for if you're interested in some really uh deep cut whimsical uh <laughs> musically based um uh oh what are they called uh sequels yeah that's the subject of this episode check those out yeah but there and there are some things that um if you if you do go into this movie like on its own wouldn't kind of seem odd but in the larger scope uh are a little bit different because um one thing is changing actresses. So in this film, we have uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal filling in for Katie Holmes, who played uh, Rachel in Batman Begins. And uh, it's kind of an interesting thing because it's it's a little bit... Um, it takes you out of it. You're like, oh, hang on. That's... Okay, so she's the same Rachel, but she has a, different, a little bit different face now. Um, and The Matrix actually has to... Uh, deal with this in the third movie which we're not talking about um where the oracle is different but it is one of those interesting things i don't know what the situation with with the this this movie is but um you kind of you know that's one of the things you kind of have to deal with if you if you're doing a series of films is that sometimes actors can't do them all and also films that you know like we've been talking about you haven't planned them all out and you're not doing them all consecutively things come up and sometimes you have to make, you know, quick changes, uh, to things like that, which don't really, uh, affect the movie itself, but it kind of, uh, has a little bit of an effect of on your viewing experience if you're watching it as a part of the whole. But as, as a film on its own, one of the things that I really like about, uh, Christopher Nolan's Batman movies, uh, is that there's, there's a lot of like themes. Everything is kind of uh, idealized and ideal driven. It's not just a superhero movie. Bad guys are doing bad things. So uh, someone needs to stop them. And I have a lot of money. So I'll do that. Uh, these movies spend a lot of time like digging into the motivations of Batman and why he does certain things. And if he should do certain things and where is that line between uh, what Batman is doing is right and what Batman is doing is wrong. And it's, it's kind of refreshing in this kind of a movie where, you know, you could just Rambo it and make, make Batman just go and destroy all the bad guys because they're bad guys and he's the good guy. 
but uh, Christopher Nolan really takes the time to write these characters and uh, delve into what makes them tick. Even the Joker uh, spending the time to tell us that all the Joker wants is uh, chaos and for things to, you know, be shooken up and not be in the same uh, order that they were in before. And even though that's kind of feels like a lack of motivation, it's still a motivation that uh, Christopher Nolan takes the time to tell us about. And one of the interesting things that I found uh, while Wikipediaing this movie is that the Joker is uh, has some uh, some basis in uh, the t- uh, Doctor Mabuse from the Testament of Doctor Mabuse, which we also watched uh, a long time ago. Um, but that was <laughs> that was an interesting situation where the character uh, also wanted chaos and this kind of criminal reign. Um, for whatever reason, and there's also like psychohypnosis that goes into that, which I wonder if you could kind of uh, extrapolate into the relationship between the Joker and Harvey Dent um, when Harvey Dent uh, kind of turns and becomes um, Two-Face. That's not too much of a spoiler. Um, I mean, the name is so strongly associated with him. Like, I yeah, mean, yeah, you, yeah. It, it's literally it's literally become a thing. Like if you if you do something related to the DC universe and you have a character named Harvey Dent, you expect them to become Two Face. It's not a shock. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, but he kind of like the Joker, kind of, you know, uses his his presence and his actions in order to completely alter um, the mindset of Harvey Dent. Uh, kind of in a similar way that happens in uh, Dr. Mobuse, except that one's a little more paranormal. But I guess the other thing, like uh, going off of this idea of having Two-Face and the Joker both in this movie is um, this, <laughs> since you have this episodic character, this uh, Batman who has this, um, he has so many different villains that he has fought in his kind of uh, extended universe uh source material the fact that um christopher nolan doesn't stick to just one for each of these movies but in order to get kind of a little bit more of the full scope of batman he kind of combines two so he gets ra's al ghul and uh the scarecrow in batman begins and he gets uh the joker and two-face in um the dark knight and then mostly just bane and then there's a little bit more i don't know all the uh, all the minutiae of the Batman mythology um, that goes into the Dark Knight Rises. Um, but yeah, it's just an interesting way that Christopher Nolan knows that this is going to be very limited. It's also, it's very rare. Actually, this is the only case where Christopher Nolan takes on an existing IP and creates a series. Uh, but he puts as much into that series as as he can without making it feel overstuffed. What if Bat? What okay? So what if you did another Batman movie, but Batman lost his memory every five seconds? <laughs> what if what be... if what if Christopher Nolan did another Batman Memento. movie? <laughs> You're the Polaroid that I deserve, <laughs> but not the one I need right now. You have to say, and he like tears say it the title in that voice. Memento. Um, what if what if Batman uh, decided to just sneakily follow people around uh, in order to find out if, about their lives? And what write if stories Christopher about Nolan them? did another Batman reboot, but he did it uh, set during World War II uh, during the Battle of Normandy? These are all and one of the members of One Direction was there. <laughs> 
and also uh, uh, Kenneth Branagh. Was he in that movie? He was, yeah. Okay. I didn't <laughs> notice him. That's one of those movies where I just have the hard time of telling all of these uh, white guys' yeah. faces apart for like an hour and a half. I'm yeah. like, oh gosh, too too much of the same, y'all. I can't. Yeah. I, uh, uh. And when they're all wearing the same like uniform, yeah, it they're help all at wearing all. the same thing, <laughs> and they all have just been like they all have a military cut. Like there's one dude with a mustache, and I'm like, yeah, I know you, yeah, and no one else. You get the blonde ones, the brown-haired ones, and the one with the with the mustache. And they're all like seventeen or eighteen, right? So like they're still yeah. not like their faces aren't fully cooked. Like they're still kind of maturing yeah. a bit. Um, so they all and have that same kind of youthful thing. Killian Murphy, who you can only recognize because you've seen too many Christopher Nolan films. Well, yeah, that's I mean, me anyway. His, <laughs> his uh, I mean, the dude's cheekbones would stab your eyes I out. Know, there, right? you, you, it's impossible to not notice him. All right, guys. Well, let's go on to overall notes now uh, before we make this the cheekbones episode. Um, And before we get into anything else, let's address the elephant in the room, Jonathan. And that is, why do movie studios make so many sequels? Um, And this is multifaceted. Uh, one, you have to consider. Uh, well, uh, money is pretty one one yeah, single facet. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I'm getting <laughs> I'm getting into what. So all of it comes down to money, as most everything does with the studio. The studio isn't really interested in art. Um, they they might be interested. They tolerate in, art. Okay, so they're interested in one or two things. They're either interested in making money, or they're interested in the prestige of an award, and that's why things tend to fall into the camp of either a blockbuster or. Um, Oscar bait, and we've already done that episode. It, it was like episode eight. So, wow, that was a long time ago. Uh, go yeah. check that out. Um, it's shameless pluck. But the reasons why uh, they would make a sequel tend to fall into the category of making money. And uh, more specifically, to break those down, uh, we need to talk about the idea of safety, which is uh, people like to sell things that have already been sold. So there's already a billion Star Wars fans out there. Why don't we just make another Star Wars movie? Because we know a bunch of people are already going to go see it. We know there's a bunch of Matrix fans out there. Let's make another two movies. That seems like a safe bet. Because like you said earlier, Jonathan, there's no way that on spec you could come to a movie studio and be like, hey, this is an original property. Nobody, It's not based on a book. It's not based on a video right. game. It's not based on anything. Let me make three of these movies. You'd be lucky if you got one ever, and that happens to a very small minority of people. Um, most things are based off of other things. That's just you know the way the industry's been forever. Um, and two, we have to talk about the idea of property grabbing, which goes back all the way to um, to again the early days of filmmaking. Uh, where it's just talking about prop, uh, copyright law and intellectual property uh, and creative intellectual property like stories, films, books, stuff like that, where you'd have to secure the rights to it. It very quickly, amongst a lot of those very small kind of like flying by the seat of the pants, cowboys with cameras, um, movie studios of the early Hollywood period, before Hollywood is even really a town, um, then tr- snatching up as many properties as they saw. The second uh, a good story was published in a newspaper, people would rush the author's house and try to buy it up before any of the other movie companies could, could buy it up because it was worthwhile. And the same thing to a certain extent goes today. If a book is successful, if a video game is successful, 
if an original IP, a play, anything like that is successful, it will be competed over by major studios for the rights. And that doesn't necessarily mean it will ever become a movie. A lot of these will end up stuck in production hell. But once one studio has the rights, they have the rights. And it's very hard to get the rights back. Uh, see Sony and Spider-Man. But with all of those all of those properties divvied up, each studio is then limited to a small number of IPs, and an even smaller number of those IPs that have been proven to be guaranteed successes. So on top of the fact that they want to return to guaranteed successes, or at least you know some money back on investment, um, intellectual properties over and over, there's a very small number of those to go back to over and over. So we tend to see a lot of sequels from a very small handful of properties to begin with. Maybe a few dozen that keep getting made and keep getting made and keep getting made. And that doesn't mean that they don't try every once in a while to start up a new one, but they don't always work. See uh, whatever that Mummy reboot was a couple years ago. (laughs) Yeah, and I mean, even going uh, away from established properties um, or or I guess uh, source materials, but just movies that you know, were undoubtedly intended to be standalone films, they become uh, moderately, even just moderately successful, and suddenly it's like, oh, okay, well, the people who liked that one will probably go see more. So think of, like, uh, just random movies like National Treasure, Night of the Museum or something, where, you know, I I cannot imagine that they went into writing National Treasure being like, we're going to make three of these. I know it. (laughs) You know, it felt very... uh, Wait, did they make a third National Treasure? Uh, I I want to say they did. I can look it up right now. You know what? No, don't. It's just headcanon now. There's three. (laughs) There are three somewhere. Uh, I don't care what you say. There's three. You might have to steal a declaration to find the third one, but hey... Uh, but yeah, but even stuff like that, um, you know, gets sequels just because they feel like whoever the audience for the first one was is going to come back again for the second one. Um, and it's it's just this weird thing that Hollywood does all the time. Um, and I I wonder, I don't know if there's any way to like prove this or evaluate this, but, you know, how how much impact does that have on uh people trying to create completely well okay aside from our um kind of more philosophical debate on originality but how much does that affect people who are pitching original uh material and who could be pitching one that gets just as popular as the first national treasure but the studio passes on it because they got to make national treasure two and uh and jump on all the fans of the first movie but that's not to say that's not to say that there isn't artistic possibilities with sequels, like we talked about with Lord of the Rings. You, it's impossible to take over giant epic magnum opus level productions if you have the established backing of a studio and an IP behind you, and if you can plan it out, you can achieve something quite miraculous. Um, and it, it, when we look at something like The Dark Knight, you know those movies have value to them that go beyond their value to entertain and their value to make money for a studio. Um, in technique, in acting style, in stylization, in the way it's written, the way it's directed, you know, they all have value to them. And the way that they can fit with each other, you know, as these individual units, okay on their own, but better together, um, you know, is impressive. And that's worth taking a look at if you're interested in creating um, 
your own IPs or you know adapting somebody else's IPs that uh, are multi phasic. You know they they have multiple parts to them other than just the one and done story. Yeah. And then the other thing that you have to consider is, uh, especially when once you like gotten past the whole, uh, you know, are we going to make this movie is when you are making it, you have to think about how is this going to stand alone? Like as as a movie, if someone's just like walking into the theater and they're like, oh, hey, I heard Rambo is really good. Here's the next Rambo movie. Uh, Maybe I'll just go check it out. You know, how is it going to do just on its own? And for something like Rambo or James Bond or something, those just have, uh, uh, again, kind of this episodic, episodic nature um, where you can base it off the character and then the character just gets put in different uh, situations and also Batman to some degree. Um, but, you know, if if you're walking into the Matrix cold, uh, the Matrix Reloaded cold, then you're going to be very lost. <laughs> you know, we were a little bit confused about, uh, you know, I don't know exactly what Rambo's backstory is, but I get like what what he's doing and why he's doing it. Um, if I'm in the Matrix, I'm like, whoa, what <laughs> what is this world? What is happening? Um, so there's, it's definitely kind of a kind of a trade off uh, for for some of those things. And so it's uh, like you're saying, like if if you know there's going to be more and. Uh, I guess it goes into marketing also. Like you have to make sure that everyone understands that um, this movie is part of a series, I guess, which is kind of impossible not to uh, with just the influx of how, how much we see marketing for everything these days. Um, But, but, you know, like with the dark Knight being able to uh, just walk into the dark Knight on its own and walk out and be totally satisfied and not like, I have to go figure out like oh, what what I just watched, what's happening. Um, you know, it, it does give the movie a different kind of um, watchability than than something that says uh, to be concluded. And you're like, oh, uh, OK, I guess uh, I'll wait for that. Yeah, right. It is asking a bit of a commitment from the audience. Uh, it's interested to see. What kind of things you could do in a movie to elicit that uh, agreement to that commitment, and what kind of things you can do to flub that commitment to that agreement? Who's going to leave off and not come back to watch a movie? Um, but yeah, fascinating, fascinating stuff. Uh, and it, as we can see, it definitely goes deeper than the uh, "why do we do it? We do it for money" conversation. Although that's one worth having, and whether or not that is a practice worth continuing is um, is definitely worth having. Um, but yeah, so as we can see, sequels have uh, have been and continue to be a large part of the film industry and a uh, fascinating, multifaceted part at that. Absolutely. But uh, we have not had a director episode in a little while, Alex. Uh, how are we going to fix that? Well, next week we're going to talk about David Lean. So uh, lean on us. Um, how many lean jokes can there be in one episode? Uh, well, first Tune we're in gonna, to find out. First, we're going to go over to Asia and lean on the bridge. Uh, the bridge on the River Kwai, that is, from 1957. Then we're going to uh, lean on our good buddy Lawrence of Arabia, 1962. And in case we catch a cold, we'll lean on Dr. Zivago from uh, 1965.
We're kind of all over like the the globe. Uh, that's just lean. That's just that's just who he is. That's what he does. <laughs> that's what he does. He's a globetrotter. He is an epic adventurer type storyteller. Uh, all of, he hasn't. I don't think he's ever made a movie that's been shorter than two hours in his life. And uh, I think a couple of these are over th- or at three hours. Uh, yeah, Lawrence, two, and Lawrence is almost three and a half. And Bridge is probably Zavago. like two fifteen or two thirty. Honestly, two forty five closer. I think two forty five. Oh my <laughs> yeah, gosh, it's almost three hours. So this is oh gonna be. Gosh. This is some long movies, but uh, they are Ooh, so good. I am so very, excited. They're very good movies for sure. For sure, they should be fascinating to talk about. Uh, but that's about all the time we have for this episode. If you have movie suggestions for us or just want to reach out, I can be found on Twitter at at js satchel. And I'm at Alex Geringer. And to find links to things that we talked about today, you can view them on the blog at thefilmlinks.com. If you like the show, let us know. Leave us a review on iTunes so other people will know what we're all about. We definitely appreciate it. Talk to you next time. All right, see ya. Foley man, clacking his heels up there alone. Man, I cannot wait for Foley Man 2. <laughs> Foley Man 2, Foley Boogaloo. Oh, man. Foley Man 3, Foley on Ice. Foley Man 4, <laughs> Foley Drift. Yeah, too fast, too Foley. Yep, yep. Foley Man 6, the fast and the foliest. Foley 7, the Foley Follies. The hateful Foley. <laughs>